This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. An Alabama hospital entered into an $80,000 settlement agreement in 2018 regarding allegations of failure to provide an adequate medical screening examination and stabilizing treatment. The patient was a 35-year-old male with chest pain and shortness of breath who presented to the ED accompanied by his girlfriend. The patient requested to see a physician and became belligerent when a nurse asked him why. That led to the patient being escorted out of the ED by security. Several minutes later, the patient returned to the ED. This time, the patient's girlfriend drove up to the ambulance bay and reported that the patient had suffered a seizure and was lying in her truck. She was informed by staff that they would not help get the patient out of the truck. In addition, the security guard told her she had to leave. The patient's girlfriend then took him to another hospital, where he was pronounced dead within 20 minutes of his arrival. Welcome back to Impulse. Today, we're diving into a crucial topic that lies at the intersection of emergency care, law, and patients' rights, EMTALA, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act. So whether you're an emergency medicine physician, a nurse, an EMT, or just a curious listener eager to understand the complexities of healthcare regulations, you are in the right place. EMTALA is more than just an acronym. It's a set of federal laws designed to ensure that anyone seeking emergency medical treatment receives appropriate care, regardless of their ability to pay or their insurance status. In this episode, we're going to unravel the layers of EMTALA, exploring its origins, its impact on emergency departments across the United States, and the challenges and ethical considerations that healthcare professionals face when providing emergency care under EMTALA's umbrella. We'll also hear real-life stories from the front lines like the one that you just heard. These are cases from the Sullivan Group blog. See the resources for a link to the stories. So to walk us through this, we brought in Dr. Sophie Terp. She's an associate professor of clinical emergency medicine at the Keck School of Medicine of the University of Southern California and a Quintiles Clinical Fellow at the Schaefer Center for Health Policy and Economics. Her primary research area of interest is access to emergency care for vulnerable patients with a focus on EMTALA. So she is the perfect guest to walk us through this complex topic. Sophie, how did you decide that EMTALA was going to be your bag? I tried to read about EMTALA because I kept seeing patients who had been seen at other hospitals that seemed to have gotten suboptimal care. (laughs) And I knew that there was a law that was supposed to require hospitals to provide some services to patients seeking care. And so when I tried to read about EMTALA and how it was enforced, I realized that there was not much available that described EMTALA enforcement um, or really explained what providers needed to know or what happened during the enforcement process. Um, So with my mentor, Mike Mencheen, uh, we requested uh, primary information that had previously been unpublished um, from CMS via Freedom of Information Act. And uh, that is how we ended up publishing our first paper in Annals of Emergency Medicine, describing uh, EMTALA enforcement over a 10-year period. And we're working very hard via another longstanding FOIA request to uh, obtain updated data. Why do we need EMTALA? 
So prior to EMTALA, hospitals did not have a duty to treat patients with emergent conditions. So I work at the public hospital near downtown Los Angeles called Los Angeles General Medical Center, formerly known as LA County USC Medical Center. And a couple years ago, I was wearing my LAC USC emergency department jacket to the dog park. And a guy there saw my jacket and came up to me and told me a story about a time he had been hospitalized at the facility. In the early 80s, he had crashed his motorcycle in Beverly Hills, and from what I can gather, had incurred some pretty severe head trauma, rib fractures, had some open extremity fractures, and was initially taken by an ambulance to a large and very well-resourced quaternary care hospital in the area where providers opened the door to the ambulance, took a look at this guy who apparently was kind of a mess, and said, why don't you take him to L.A. County, USC?, which was approximately 10 miles away, which in L.A. traffic, even with lights and sirens, is a good 30 to 60 minutes. And he got there and was treated and was hospitalized for a week due to the severity of his injuries. And as he was telling this story, the other dog park patrons were outraged. How could a hospital do this? And the reality was, in the early 80s, hospitals did not have a duty to treat patients presenting with emergency medical conditions. That's a really interesting story. And, uh, you know, I would like to say that we never hear those stories nowadays, now that we have EMTALA. But I think it makes a good case for EMTALA. But what is the EMTALA origin story? So in the early 80s, hospitals with emergency departments could and often did turn away patients who were critically ill, injured, or in active labor, and typically due to a either real or perceived concern about the patient's ability to pay. Again, prior to EMTALA, there was no duty for hospitals to treat, so physicians at public emergency departments often received patients turned away from other hospitals without screening or stabilization or an accepting physician. And some of these physicians started publishing reports documenting these incidents of patient dumping. And one brave physician named Art Kellerman was practicing at a public hospital in Tennessee, and he started actually collecting the wristbands of patients who had come from other facilities um, and had been transferred due to primary economic reasons, often without appropriate uh, screening or stabilization. And he actually went in front of Congress during congressional hearings related to patient dumping and emptied a huge bag with hundreds of these wristbands onto the House desk to really show Congress the impact of patient dumping on public hospitals and and the the many patients that were affected by this uh, practice. In response to these congressional hearings and many uh, reports, often by emergency physicians, of patient dumping and descriptions in the medical literature, Congress passed EMTALA in 1985, and the law was enacted in 1986. That is such an interesting story and very powerful visual. I love that idea. Sophie, tell us, let's just say this out loud. What is patient dumping? Patient dumping refers to the practice by which hospitals turn away patients with emergency medical conditions 
based on insurance status or other characteristics. So what are some of the key components that we need to know about EMTALA? Main requirements of EMTALA that are important for providers to understand are the following. For patients presenting to a dedicated emergency department, hospitals are required to provide first a medical screening exam to evaluate for presence of an emergent condition or active labor. If an emergent condition or active labor is identified, stabilization of identified emergent conditions is required using resources available at the facility, including potentially on-call physicians. If a patient is found to have an emergent condition that requires specialized services that are unavailable at the hospital, for example, a patient at a small community hospital without a neurosurgeon is found to have an epidural hematoma, the hospital is still required to provide stabilizing measures such as reversal of coagulopathy if the patient requires intubation, for example, that should be provided. However, if the patient requires a neurosurgeon for definitive stabilization, they're required to arrange transfer to a facility with those higher level of care services. Hospitals that have specialty services such as neurosurgery are required to accept transfers of patients at other EDs requiring specialized services for stabilization if they have the capacity and capability to stabilize the patient. And there are many additional requirements, many of which are administrative in nature, that would be important for department or hospital administrators to understand. Um, But the ones that I listed are the main ones that are most important for practicing emergency physicians, advanced practice providers, uh, nurses, et cetera, to be aware of. I also want to note that CMS has clarified that EMTALA applies to medical as well as psychiatric emergencies in addition to active labor. Many obstetric and psychiatric intake units, as well as some hospital-based urgent cares, are considered dedicated EDs under EMTALA and are required to comply with the requirements of the law. That is a lot of things that feel fairly logical and feel like the right thing to do. But I know in practice, they can be a little bit more challenging to actually monitor and to enforce. How is EMTALA enforced? EMTALA is enforced by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and EMTALA applies to all hospitals with Medicare provider agreements, which is the vast majority of hospitals in the United States. The most extreme penalty for failing to resolve an EMTALA citation is termination of a Medicare provider agreement. And that tends to be financially catastrophic for hospitals and typically results in facility closure or downgrading of emergency services, which can really be devastating for communities served by those hospitals. Additionally, via a separate mechanism, following an EMTALA citation, the Office of the Inspector General can separately impose civil monetary penalties on hospitals or even individual physicians found to be in violation of EMTALA. So, Sophie, you mentioned that this applies to any hospital with a Medicare contract. So who is this not applying to and what are the implications there? EMTALA applies to all facilities with Medicare provider agreements. However, certain uh, hospitals affiliated with 
the federal government, such as VA hospitals, uh, do not have to comply with EMTALA. In addition, several types of privately funded children's hospitals may not have to comply with EMTALA. And a more recent addition to this list are some freestanding emergency departments, which uh, do not accept Medicare. Sophie, how often is EMTALA actually enforced? So using unpublished data that we acquired via Freedom of Information Act from CMS, we found that over a decade period, nearly half of hospitals in the United States were investigated for an EMTALA violation, and about a quarter were actually cited for violating the law. During that period, 12 facilities had provider agreements terminated as a result of EMTALA citation, and about three-quarters of these facilities either closed or downgraded emergency services for some period of time after that termination. Wow, that is a lot of people who are being investigated. So like basically, flip of the coin, you should expect to be investigated, but very few people are actually cited, or less, only half of those people who are evaluated, are cited. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. About half. And civil monetary penalties resulting from EMTALA violations are more rare. A prior paper that came out of Irvine about seven or eight years ago uh, found that about 8% of EMTALA citations resulted in civil monetary penalties. And more recent data that's unpublished indicates that currently it's about 3% of EMTALA citations ultimately result in a civil monetary penalty. What about individuals? How often are individual physicians evaluated and cited? So we looked at approximately 200 civil monetary penalty settlements occurring between 2002 and 2015, and we found that during that period, only 8 or 4% were levied against individual physicians and that the vast majority were levied against facilities. Seven of the eight penalties against individual physicians were imposed upon on-call specialists, including six who failed to respond to evaluate and treat patients in the emergency department and one who failed to accept an appropriate transfer of a patient requiring higher level of care. There was only one penalty imposed on an emergency physician, and that involved a case where a provider repeatedly failed to provide a medical screening examination to a pregnant teenager based on the erroneous belief that a minor could not be evaluated or treated absent parental consent. I think that's really good news for us. And I I have to say, it's not super surprising to me that emergency medicine physicians are not being cited very often because I feel like the core tenets of EMTALA are kind of like the core tenets of why we go into emergency medicine or in my case, pediatric emergency medicine, because you want to be able to identify emergent conditions. You want to be able to stabilize. You thrive stabilizing patients and you want to provide care for everyone. So, So I think that all those tenants align with our beliefs or why we go into emergency medicine for the most part. 33-week pregnant woman presented to Hospital A complaining of leaking fluids, pelvic pain, and vomiting. An ED nurse told the patient that the hospital did not have an obstetrician on site and that the patient could either start treatment at Hospital A and be transferred later, or that her male companion could drive her immediately to Hospital B where her obstetrician practiced. After being told this, the patient left Hospital A by private vehicle to Hospital B, a 30-minute drive. 
Hospital A never provided the patient or her unborn child a medical screening exam and failed to transfer this patient who had an emergency medical condition. At Hospital B, the patient underwent an emergency C-section and delivered a male infant without a heartbeat. The receiving hospital's efforts to revive the infant were unsuccessful. Sophie, what are some common situations in which ED physicians might encounter EMTALA-related issues or dilemmas? So the most common clinical deficiency involved in EMTALA violations is failure to provide an appropriate medical screening exam, uh, which we sometimes abbreviate as an MSE. There are many clinical scenarios where it might be practical or theoretically reasonable to redirect a patient to another facility that has services that they are requesting. And where many hospitals get into trouble is when someone, whether it is the security guard or a nurse at triage or a physician at triage, redirects a patient to an alternate venue of care without making sure that the patient is entered into the central log and providing an MSC. One case that comes to mind is the case of a six-year-old who was brought by their parents with an upper extremity fracture to a hospital that primarily served adult patients and was redirected by a security guard to proceed across the street to a separate children's hospital where the staff member thought that the patient would get better care and where theoretically... And practically, that was likely the case. But by not logging and screening the patient, the hospital uh, was found to be in violation of EMTALA. When we recently looked at civil monetary penalties related to EMTALA violations involving obstetrical care, we found that 80% of these cases involved failure to provide MSE. We found that often the offer, suggestion, or demand by staff for a pregnant patient to proceed to another facility, typically a facility where either their established obstetrician practiced or where generally obstetrical services were available, were common among EMTALA cases. So even if the most logical and reasonable course of action would be to redirect a patient to their preferred venue of care or a venue where the most appropriate care is available, it is essential to log the visit, provide a medical screening exam, and to log the disposition. If a patient has a condition that theoretically you would have to provide stabilization for, logging the patient and initiating the MSE at least gives you enough information generally to be able to advise the patient if they choose to leave of their own decision once realizing that Uh, specialty services are unavailable of the risks and benefits of leaving without additional stabilizing measures or arranged transfer. So even if the most logical and reasonable course of action would be to redirect a patient to their preferred venue of care or a venue of care where the specialty service that they need is available, it is essential to log the visit, the medical screening exam, and the disposition. Okay, so I think this gets into like the practicalities of MTALA. I did fellowship at a freestanding children's hospital that was like literally like 100 yards away from a tertiary trauma center for that was geared mostly towards adults, saw all comers, obviously, and had this like massive OB hospital. Like it's like the state of the art resources for pregnant women (laughs) in Southern California. 
And we would get patients because we're on the same road and like around the corner from them, we would have like say an MI or a pregnant patient, somebody with chest pain or like feeling like they're having contractions come into our emergency department because they thought that we were that hospital. And, you know, we would joke as a fellow about like wanting to stand outside and be like pointing down, (laughs) keep rolling, keep rolling, keep rolling. But we couldn't do that because of Mtala. How do you recommend having that conversation? Because clearly, you know, delivering your baby in a pediatric emergency department is not the best, not your ideal spot to deliver a baby. And that transfer is just practically so long and not, as you said, not reasonable or logical, whereas they could drive the next few yards down the road. How do you have that conversation with that patient in an EMTALA appropriate way? It's never wrong to state facts. So it's important to inform patients of uh, the realities of the situation and to let them know that they're Uh, is a requirement to provide a medical screening exam, stabilization, and attempts to transfer. So it's always good to start there by making sure the patient understands what their rights are. The reality is that there is not a service that they need available at the hospital. You can tell them that, but uh, the rule is that you should it should not be relayed in a coercive way. So if you tell a patient this hospital does not have an obstetrician. We can provide screening and attempt to stabilize and transfer. That may take some period of time. If based on that information, they choose to proceed to another destination, it is very important that you have logged the visit, logged the medical screening exam, logged the offer for uh, additional Uh, evaluation, stabilization, and or possibly transfer if that would be appropriate. And by providing a medical screening exam, you can potentially at least give them uh, reasonable information about potential risks of them leaving and document those risks. Um, You know, at the end of the day, I think most of us just want the best thing for our patient, but in terms of avoiding what can be a very cumbersome situation when there is an EMTALA investigation or violation, logging the visit, the screening exam, and the disposition are very important. A man presented to the ED stating his mind was disturbed, but later eloped from the ED into single-degree weather wearing paper scrubs while his discharge was processed. His body was found about 300 feet from the hospital. The cause of death was attributed to hypothermia. I feel like another tricky spot is our patients with psychiatric complaints. So what is our obligation to these patients with concerns for like an acute psychiatric process? So EMTALA does apply to psychiatric emergencies as well. And when patients present requesting evaluation for psychiatric emergencies or are brought in by others who are requesting uh, evaluation on their behalf, it is the obligation of hospitals to screen for psychiatric emergencies, generally 
in emergency medicine, that entails evaluation for suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation, or grave disability. If they're not found to have a psychiatric emergency and are stable for discharge, then uh, based on a reasonable evaluation, then the EMTALA obligation is done. If they are found to have a psychiatric emergency and to require a, for example, involuntary hold um, or further stabilizing care by a behavioral health team, then hospitals are generally required to provide stabilizing care to the best of their abilities. So if they have on-call psychiatrists available and patients are boarding for a long time, waiting for transfer to available inpatient beds, uh, recent determinations have made it clear that there is an expectation that those uh, services be utilized and to try to stabilize the patient during boarding. And we, those of us who work in emergency departments, have all experienced increases in boarding for psychiatric patients. And it's tragic because it is a suboptimal therapeutic environment for patients experiencing psychiatric crisis. However, the reality is, is the availability of inpatient beds is far lower than it needs to be to really allow for prompt transfer of many patients to a unit that can most ideally provide stabilizing care. So an emergency department that doesn't have a social worker or that has behavioral or mental health training or a psychiatrist, someone that can actually do that, they're obligated to identify the medical emergency condition and then transfer to another emergency department? Or do they just have to then hold them until there is a bed in a psychiatric facility? Like, I have a hard time seeing other hospitals accepting more of these emergencies. How does that, like, practically work? So hospitals that don't have inpatient psychiatric units are required to provide a environment where the patient can at least be safely monitored. And if there aren't specialty stabilizing services at that hospital, they are required to attempt to transfer to a facility that does have uh, inpatient psychiatric services. Hospitals with inpatient psychiatric services at facilities with Medicare provider agreements are required to accept patients requiring these specialty services if they have capability, meaning specialists available, the type of bed space available required for that patient's care, and capacity, meaning they have physical space and staffing for the patient, regardless of the patient's ability to pay. It is not uncommon for hospitals to be cited for failing to accept appropriate transfers of patients at other facilities with psychiatric emergencies with noted economic rationale for not accepting them. So asking about insurance, for example. There was a interesting case where a hospital that was honestly had put been put in a sort of compromising position by closure of a bunch of inpatient beds nearby, had been boarding patients for weeks, like many, many patients, and ultimately got a $1.3 million fine. And Interestingly, one of the noted findings during their investigation was that they had had inpatient beds available on a 
voluntary behavioral unit that they had not utilized for patients who were on involuntary holds, which was a determination I was sort of surprised by because it seems like there might be different sort of security measures or um, safety measures for a non-voluntary ward. But I'm sometimes surprised by the determinations, and it seems like there is some state and regional variation in how the law is enforced. So. So this has been super helpful in trying to kind of understand EMTALA and how it applies. What resources or support systems are available to ED physicians to help navigate EMTALA-related issues or to seek guidance when they need it? So CMS issues EMTALA interpretive guidelines, which they actually update every couple of years and are available to the state inspectors that are authorized to do the EMTALA investigations. And the document is very long and would be hard to read word for word, but having awareness that it is there and available online, I think would be super helpful to providers. And I can send you the link that you can include uh, along with this podcast. And I think it's particularly important for emergency administrators, nurse managers, and uh, hospital administrators to be aware of this resource since it really does give specific information about uh, some more nuanced situations, um, the expectations of which have been clarified in these uh, interpretive guidelines. Yeah, it seems like if you as a physician have a situation that you're not sure about, going to your, you know, admin, your medical director, your nursing director is probably the the first step. Absolutely. And sometimes they know the answer, sometimes they don't. But emergency department administrators, including medical directors, nurse administrators, and hospital administration should all be familiar with EMTALA requirements. Sophie, anything else you think we should know? I can give an example of an interesting case I reviewed recently involving an on-call specialist. Young teenager presented to an emergency department and was found to have testicular torsion. The teenager was solid adult size, and the emergency physician contacted a transfer center at a nearby hospital that had available urology uh, services, requesting transfer and care for the patient. The on-call urologist refused to speak to the ED physician, stating that he was not a pediatric urologist and that the patient could not come to that facility and that he was too busy and about to go into the operating room and that the patient needed to go to a pediatric hospital. During the investigation of the facility that declined the transfer, the investigators reviewed documents identifying that The urologist in question actually had privileges to see patients of all ages and had seen minors as young as six months in in their clinic and practice within the last year, and additionally reviewed the surgeon's surgical schedule from the day in question, finding that his OR case that was contributory to his declining the case did not start for several hours after the case had been declined. Um, So it was interesting to me to find that uh, the investigations often look at hospital privileges and not just specialist preferences when it came to ages of patients treated. 
Yeah, that's a super interesting story and definitely something to keep in mind as an ED physician when you are at a critical access hospital trying to transfer a patient, really making sure that your patient is not getting declined for, um, you know, an unreasonable reason, maybe invoking Imtala. <laughs> Pulse check. EMTALA requires that all individuals, regardless of their ability to pay, receive an appropriate medical screening examination, or MSC, and necessary stabilizing treatment for emergency medical conditions when they present to an emergency department. Physicians must provide care without regard to the patient's insurance status, financial means, or any other discriminatory factors. EMTALA emphasizes equal access to emergency medical services for everyone. When a patient requires care beyond the capabilities of the presenting hospital, EMTALA mandates that the hospital must arrange an appropriate transfer to another facility. The transfer should be based on the patient's medical needs and not influenced by financial considerations. Hospitals with specialized services are required to accept transfers of patients at other EDs requiring specialty services for stabilization if they have the capacity and capability to stabilize the patient. EMTALA defines an emergency medical condition as a condition that manifests severe symptoms, including severe pain, that could result in serious impairment to bodily functions or organs if not treated immediately. EMTALA also applies to pregnant women in labor, ensuring that they receive necessary care even if they are unable to pay or lack of insurance. Failure to comply with EMTALA regulations can result in significant penalties, including fines and potential exclusion from participation in Medicare, but penalties against individual emergency physicians are incredibly rare. Well, as we wrap up, Sarah, it's clear that EMTALA isn't just a set of regulations. It really is a vital framework that underlines our commitment as healthcare providers to deliver emergency care to anyone in need, regardless of their ability to pay. I think we've heard some tough stories that highlight the ethical, legal, and logistical complexities that emergency medicine physicians navigate every day as they strive to uphold those principles of EMTALA. Yeah, and it really is a delicate dance, balancing the legal obligations with the practicalities of patient care and resource management. Well, we hope that this episode has provided you all with a deeper understanding of EMTALA and its impact on our own day-to-day -day care of patients. If you have any thoughts, questions, or stories to share, don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media. Your insights are invaluable in continuing the conversation. You can find us online at EMPulse Podcast. And we want to express our gratitude to our colleagues in the trenches at UC Davis who work to ensure that every patient, regardless of their circumstances, receives the care they need. And thank you to OM Productions for working to make sure that all of our interviews are created with the same quality care as well. So until next time, stay curious, stay inspired, and stay tuned. Stay tuned.